Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Not a Gentleman's Work, the title of Gerard Coppel's new book from Hachette, comes from Crime and Punishment, Dostoevsky's novel about an axe murder. And its subtitle, The Untold Story of a Gruesome Murder at Sea and the Long Road to Truth, reveals the author's intention in his telling of the story of what was perhaps the most notorious crime in American nautical history as it deals with issues of race, class, money, coerce, confession, capital punishment, and justice obscured by privilege, issues that continue to be relevant aspects of American life. I'm very pleased to welcome Gerard Coppel to our show now. Hi. Hi, Leonard. Good to be with you. Is this really the most notorious murder in American nautical history? Uh, <laughs> it's on the list. It's up there. The top. Yeah, it's up there. There have been a number of other books written about it, including The After House, a novel based on the case by Mary Roberts Reinhardt um, that uh, played a role, actually, in the story. We'll get to that later. Um, now, have you come up with any new information? Um, I would like to think I have. Um, yeah. Um, you know, I read... The, 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 for anybody writing about this case, you have to go to the Harvard Law Library and uh, read the trial transcripts. There are two trials of uh, Thomas Bram, who was the first mate on the ship, um, who was tried twice in Boston with a U.S. Supreme Court reversal in between. Um, you've got to read those 5,500 or so pages. And then you have to read a number of other uh, common texts. But then you also... And which not other which other people who've uh, dealt with this case before perhaps haven't done is go very closely through newspaper records, which of course is a lot easier now with uh, online um, online databases, and also to have access to some unpublished and private things, which I managed to do by um, befriending or 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 corresponding with, however you want to put it, the grandson of the guy who I think did it. And I mm -hmm. don't think anybody has, has gotten that close to to that guy uh, before. That's because uh, it's been rather unclear. The, the whole story uh, has, some people have described it as frustrating. Uh, the yeah. murders were committed on July 14th, 1896, 124 years ago next month. Uh, and they took place on a three-masted sailing ship, a wood-hulled barkentine named Herbert Fuller that departed Boston bound for Buenos Aires on July 8th, 1896. It was loaded with New England lumber. Was Argentina a major market for American lumber? <laughs> uh, I mean, yes. Now you're getting a little bit out of my, my expertise zone. <laughs> But yes, I mean, I, mean, I, I, th I always thought there were a lot of trees in Argentina. <laughs> well, you know, um, in, in later years, Thomas Bram, this uh, this first mate who was uh, who was uh, charged with the crimes, ran a ship uh, of mm. his uh, of his own running lumber from uh, from the Florida Panhandle to Portland, Maine. Mm -hmm. I mean, well, yes. why does lumber have to go to, from Florida to Maine? But, you know, it did. And uh, um, I don't know. That, that's just the way the way commerce works, I suppose. 
And he uh, had an interesting uh, uh, history afterward. He, uh, uh, after he got out of jail, and we'll get to that whole story, um, he wound up, as you say, captain, become the captain of his own ship, the Alvina. Uh, but he, he, his ship uh, collided with an, an anchored light ship in 1936, and that pretty yeah. much ended his story. Well, he continued, you know, a little bit after that. Um, and, and yes, he had some incidents um, with his ship, but, you know, everybody did. I don't think he had any more incidents mm-hmm. than, than, you know, any other. Remember, this is, you know, the days before uh, satellite navigation and mm-hmm. uh, things like that. And, you know, I mean, you, if you read the, the papers closely, especially like um, – uh, uh, shipping papers and things like that from the period. You, you see this really kind of all the time. And uh, I think basically if you make it into port without without uh, killing anyone or losing your cargo, you've done a decent job. There were 12 people on board the, the Herbert Fuller, the, the ship's yep. captain and owner, Charles Nash, his wife, Laura, two mates, the steward, six crewmen, and a passenger named Lester Hawthorne Monks. It doesn't sound like the sort of voyage that would include a passenger. Why was he, why was Monks on board? Well, because he was a bad boy. Hmm. Um, He was 20 years old, the son of a, uh, um, not a Boston Brahmin family, but an increasingly prominent uh, commercial family in Boston. There were only three generations uh, in the United States. Uh, Lester's grandfather was an immigrant from, uh, from Ireland. But they had uh, uh, done very well for themselves. And uh, Lester, as, as had been a number of uh, relatives before him, was sent off to Harvard, um, where he uh, basically um, app- apparently did nothing more than drink Mm-hmm. Um, so I, he flunked I, out. I, uh, I, well, I, he's actually thrown out. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, I mean, he was given the opportunity to um, to uh, to uh, um, to leave on his own, but uh, that was just ahead of his his being thrown out. And his parents uh, were were not, of course, happy about this, and um, they put him. On, a, on this ship, they basically bought his passage on this uh, commercial ship. And, so he would dry out. Uh, dry out, yeah, dry out yeah. On, on the uh, on on the ocean. And uh, they expected him after this voyage to Argentina not to come home, but to continue <laughs> on to Europe on another ship and maybe tour around Europe for a while. And uh, they really weren't much interested in seeing him again. Were and, they aware uh, that aside from clothing and necessary accessories, he had brought a, on board a, a bottle of brandy, a bottle of whiskey, and, and six bottles of beer, so he wasn't ready to dry out? Well, it was 60 bottles of beer. <laughs> oh, 60 and, bottles. Yeah, yes, 60. and it may actually even have been more than that. Um, it, as I, That seems to be a safe number, let's put it that way. And um, interestingly, at the first trial, at which he was obviously a prominent witness, he said he had only had a few of the uh, bottles of mm-hmm. beer. But at the second trial, um, he said he had actually had quite a few more than that. And I think, I think the, now, now we're beginning to get at what might have been involved on this ship. 
Yeah, at, uh, well, at we'll, two, at we'll two get to that. in the morning. On, yeah, okay. <laughs> so uh, the 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 question that. Uh, I think uh, burns at me and seems most relevant to, to today is the role that race played in this story. What, what role did it play? Yeah, you know, it, it, it's a tough one. And, and let me explain. Uh, Thomas Bram, the first mate, the guy who was uh, ultimately uh, put on trial, uh, was black. He was from uh, the Caribbean island of St. Kitts. And uh, his mother... Uh, definitely was black. His father may or may not have. It, it, it's, a, it's a bit unclear, um, but probably. But in any case, Bram himself had sort of a, a swarthy look that, you know, very, and also uh, darkened by uh, sun exposure. And he could easily have passed for, say, somebody from a Mediterranean background, uh, which he... Uh, um, did he, he claimed that he was white whenever possible? He actually said would say he was from uh, um, Nova Scotia, which is difficult to believe, but 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 that's what he put out there. Except on um, official government documents, he would acknowledge that where he was from and and what his um, his racial uh, background was. And he uh, was he an American citizen? Uh, he was. Mm-hmm. He um, he left, sort of ran away from home, uh, from uh, um, from the Caribbean in uh, oh, about twenty years before this, and he got on he he got a ship to New York and worked on fishing vessels in uh, in the Northeast, even rose to captain of some smaller vessels. And then um, left the sea, went to live uh, primarily in New York City, where he married a girl, uh, Hattie, Hattie Hottenroth, who <laughs> was the daughter of German immigrants. Uh, they all lived in Brooklyn. Um, interestingly, Hattie um, had no idea that her husband was black, or as they said in those days, Negro. And... Um, well, mulatto. Wouldn't he also call them mulatto? Well, it's it's even hard mm-hmm. to say. He might have been mm-hmm. entirely um, uh, black. Mm-hmm. It's it, 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 it's 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 hard to track down. So, in any case, uh, she thought he was white, um, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah. What was the question? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I had asked about race being a oh, yeah, factor yeah. here, and, yeah, yeah. We, yeah. and that'll that'll come out as as the, as the uh, story unfolds. Uh, yeah. How much do we really know about what happened early in the morning of that six day at sea? Well, th- th- that's the thing. Um, the only uh, all that we know is from testimony at the trials, especially the first trial. Uh, the, the record of that trial is complete. Um, the record of the second trial is not because a volume is missing, which includes uh, most of the defense case, mm. uh, in, including Bram's uh, testimony. So, And do we know uh, why it's missing? No, we don't. I, don't. I mean, there may be some nefarious, you know, cause somewhere, some, you know, 
Mm. You know, buried somewhere, but I, I, I don't know. The, um, these volumes, which are in the Harvard Law Library, were uh, acquired by them from one of Bram's defense lawyers and uh, after he died and appear to be the only copies of the trial transcripts. They are, mm. uh, these are typed um, onion skin paper in heavy volumes with, with many pages in each volume. Um, and they're the only record. So, so. just before 2 a.m., someone made his way through uh, the, the cabin into the stateroom where he took the ship's firefighting axe from the rear wall. And right. then he killed the captain, his wife, and the second mate with uh, seven or eight blows to each of them. Uh, uh, now, that had to have made a lot of noise, and yet no one seemed to have heard anything. I would imagine somebody would have screamed well, when, they, uh, when he or she was being hit by an axe. Well, the, the, um, if, if I believe the order of killing was the second mate first, hmm. and he was asleep off watch, the first axe blow to his head killed him. He didn't have an opportunity to scream. The remaining, uh, let's see, the, the second mate got another seven blows or so. Uh, the, the others were just, you know, um, whatever psychologically was going on in the in the axe handler's head because mm. because the, the first one did it, and then he the uh, whoever had the axe went off to the captain's room. And important to note, if I hadn't already, the captain and his wife slept separately. Don't know why. Uh, he was forty-two, she was thirty-nine. They'd been childhood friends in Maine. Um, they got married young and they had no kids. Um, so the guy with the axe goes into the captain's room, which is at the back of the, uh, of this, uh, aft cabin and gives him a number of blows. Also the first one coming while the captain was asleep. So no noise there. And then he goes on to the, um, to Laura Nash's room, she sleeps at the opposite end, the uh, the Ford starboard right side end of the cabin. And there, he apparently um, wakes her up because the first two blows to her body are defensive blows. They're uh, um, axe cuts on her hands. In fact, one of them cuts one of her hands off. And... Um, so clearly she was aware of her fate, the, the, the only one of the three of them. And then five or six more blows finish her off. And it was when she screamed, if she did in fact scream, the only testimony we have about that is from Lester Monks, who was sleeping in a room between the wife and the husband. A very strange uh, setup, mm. but so it was. And uh, supposedly it was the wife's scream that awakened monks, and then he uh, emerged out into the main part of the cabin to investigate. I'm speaking on our show today on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, Leonard Lopate at Large, with Gerard Coppell, whose latest book is Not a Gentleman's Work. The Untold Story of a Gruesome Murder at Sea and the Long Road to Truth. It's published by Hachette. Well, uh, so uh, there, uh, 
so we, we have the, this murder. Nobody but one person says he, he heard it, uh, uh, although he was also a possible perpetrator. Um, now, um, the uh, Charlie, the, the man who was called Charlie Brown, Julius Leopold Westerberg, he yeah. called himself Charlie Brown. He yep. was um, uh, he was steering the ship at the time. Didn't he Correct. claim to have, to have witnessed the murder through a porthole in the cabin? He did claim that. Yes. Um, and who did he, he say did, he saw did it? Well, he, he said he saw Thomas Bram, the first mate, do it. Hmm. Um, now, he, he also said that what he saw, he thought he saw Thomas Bram striking the passenger because he thought it was the passenger who, who slept in that cabin. Hmm. Now, remember that Charlie Brown, not remember, but I'll, I'll tell you, um, Charlie Brown is one of the six crewmen who sleep in the forward cabin, never go into the aft cabin, uh, just as most of the people in the aft cabin never go into the forward cabin, uh, forward uh, cabin. But um, the crewmen who steer the boat, basically, they go from the forward part of the boat, walk past the aft cabin, and then go to the wheel to steer. Um, yes, uh, Charlie Brown claimed that he looked through the window and saw Bram. But um, it's his word alone, and he was something of a, of a notorious um, liar. <laughs> and um, there were there there were reasons for him to 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 claim that, and he and he only claimed it much uh, late in the game. In fact, he didn't tell anybody uh, that he had witnessed it. Uh, that next morning. Correct. He didn't tell anybody for a couple of days until now we have the, the nine survivors, uh, the killer amongst them, uh, getting the boat back to shore. They eventually get to Halifax first. But um, and everyone is you know scared of everyone else. Nobody really knows who did what um, and who knows who, who did what. Um, uh Two days after the killings, Charlie Brown is thought to have done them and is grabbed by the um, by the steward. Uh, his name was Jonathan Spencer. He was a, a, an interesting fellow, but uh, grabbed him and he was then chained. Uh, Charlie Brown was chained to the base of one of the masts. Um, now, that might have satisfied things and everybody might have, okay, fine, Charlie Brown did it and we'll get back to shore and everything's going to be okay. But four days later, a day before they got to Halifax, Charlie Brown tells one of the crew members and one of the crew members tells uh, Jonathan Spencer, the, the steward who'd sort of taken charge of things, um, that in fact he had looked through the window and, and seen uh, Tom, Tom Bram do this. And that resulted in Tom Bram being chained himself to uh, to uh, another mast. And it was Bram, of course, as the first mate, who was skilled as a navigator, who had gotten them actually back to Halifax. None of the other uh, people on the boat uh, would have any idea uh, how, to, how to get the ship back from the middle of the ocean to uh, um, to port. Now, and what had would... Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, you finish. Uh, okay, so... Uh, you know why would Charlie Brown have, uh, why would Charlie Brown have said this? Um, 
Well, one possibility is that um, there's a reward for bringing a, uh, a ship whose captain has been murdered into port. And it's quite possible that everybody was angling for, um, amongst the crew, was angling for, for that reward. Uh, if the ship sails into port with, with uh, Tom Bram in charge, no reward, nor for, for, for Tom Bram, because he's the first mate and this is his job. Uh, but if Tom Bram is uh, chained up, hmm, maybe, maybe, maybe they're in for, um, for reward. Possibility. Didn't Tom Bram uh, make himself look more suspicious because he threw the axe overboard? Yeah, it, it's unclear. Again, um, so after the murders, uh, murders happened about two o'clock in the morning. Um, uh, shortly after that, uh, Lester Monks comes up on deck having discovered the murders or at least having seen the captain murdered. He never actually looked for the uh, for Laura Nash or the second mate comes up on deck, alerts Bram to the murders, and they kind of hang out for a couple of hours until it gets light four o'clock in the morning then. And they go get uh, uh, Spencer, the steward from the forward cabin. And then the three of them kind of talk about what what should happen before anybody else is involved. And at that point, one of them sees the, the axe uh, stuck into the deck load. Uh, it's like a, the, the boat was loaded up with lumber, uh, I think, as we said, and um, uh, loaded up on deck and it, it, all over the ship, but, but on deck as well. And uh, Bram supposedly finds the axe uh, jammed into the deck load. And then the three of them talk about what to talk over what to do about it. And then depending on whose testimony you believe, it's unclear exactly who throws it overboard and who supports throwing it overboard. In fact, Monks, um, Monks in fact, said, yes, throw it overboard because uh, it may be used against us. Mm. So there's a a bit of debate, a bit of uncertainty there about how the acts happened to go away. Now, why wasn't Monks even considered a, a, a serious candidate for uh, the killer? He, he's the only one who had blood on his clothes. Yeah. Well, I don't know. You, you could, the, the trial took place in Boston. Was it because he was a white Brahmin, do you think? Well, he wasn't quite a Brahmin. But I know you made that point, but I mean, he was still yes. kind of an, a Boston aristocrat. Yes. Yes. Uh, I would say yes. Um. On the other hand, you know, uh, Bram, who was put on trial, was never referred to derogatorily in any of the press. I mean, I read hundreds of newspapers, newspaper accounts. Never was he denigrated by the the sort of words that are used to denigrate Mm. um, people like Tom Bram. Um, And this is Boston. You know, I might have expected it, but but no. Um, it, it, was, it was rather straightforward, and it was just between these three people, Bram, who was on the deck at the time, Ford of the, uh, of the, after, uh, Ford of the after house, where the killing soup plays, and uh, Charlie Brown, who was at the wheel behind or aft of the after house, and Lester Monks in the after house where the killing soup plays. And there's, your sort of, there's the geometry of it, you know, these three people in the area of, and um, 
In fact, when, when Bram was found guilty by his first jury, uh, most people were stunned. They had believed that the evidence, uh, or the testimony at trial, suggested that he wasn't guilty. And yet, you know, there he goes. <laughs> what happened to the dead bodies? Oh, yeah, they were, uh, um, well, they were, their heads were all, uh, you know, quite um, uh, destroyed, really, uh, with, with various other injuries to the bodies from, 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 from the varied axe cuts. Uh, they were, uh, the morning that they were discovered, uh, brought up on deck, wrapped in, um, in sheets, and placed in uh, a small boat that was kept on deck. And uh, they were laid in there, the captain in the middle, Laura, his, his wife, to, uh, his, to his left, closest to his heart, and the second mate on the other side. And uh, they were left on deck for a few days, but this was July, and uh, the bodies had, you know, <clears throat> massive open wounds, and eventually that, that became untenable, and uh, they lowered the boat over the side and dragged it astern, and that's how they came into Halifax. They said the stench was frightful. Yeah, And when the ship arrived, uh, there was already... There were already people who had heard about what had happened. Uh, wasn't the dock uh, crowded? Yeah, they, had, they they heard about it as as the ship was being brought in by mm. the uh, by the um, uh, um, by a local boat uh, by a pilot by a local pilot. Um, yeah, no, they, everybody crowded around. It was a, it was a big big deal. Um, and uh, people caught glimpses of the bodies as they were as by that time they weren't even really bodies so much anymore but but masses of uh, of wounded flesh you know from from the shoulders up mm. uh and uh yeah it was quite a scene it's quite a, you know especially for uh, Halifax which didn't get that much uh uh activity like that so they were extradited back to the United States everybody was arrested but then suspicion settled on Thomas Bram uh, yeah. Only Thomas Bram. Uh, and as you said, it didn't take long for Boston's legal system to convict Bram. Uh, uh, he, but he was only found guilty of one of the murders. Even all the, why wasn't he indicted for all three? Uh, how did they explain the other two? Right. Well, the, the prosecutor uh, decided that it was easiest to go for the murder of the captain because that murder had supposedly had an eyewitness, which was uh, Charlie Brown looking through the window and, and seeing the killing. There were no witnesses for the other two. And what did so they the say Bram's motive was, uh, that he wanted well, to, to be, take over as captain of the ship? <laughs> well, there you go. The, the jurors after the first trial and even after the second trial, too, and even the prosecutors in both trials, the different prosecutors, um, they acknowledged that they could find no motive. There's really no motive for anybody killing the three of them, uh, either Charlie Brown or Lester Monks. Uh, nothing obvious anyway, and nothing that came out in trial or even afterwards. But, um, uh, yeah, yeah. So why was there a second trial? 
Well, at the first trial, uh, Bram is uh, convicted, and there's a lot of interesting material about the jury debates. Um, uh, a lot of the jurors spoke, so we have a sense of what was going on in the jury room. Um, the actual, the, the, the final vote before the necessary unanimous vote was, uh, was nine to three in favor of conviction, and the three holdouts were absolutely convinced that, that, that Bram did not do it, but they just essentially collapsed in, in the room with, with the nine others. Uh, also, they were in the jury room for 36 hours, uh, so it was a, uh, a long process. Uh, in any case, he's convicted, and because, and this is, I should say this is in federal court, because this is a crime at sea. It's actually in circuit court, not district court, so the, the, the second uh, level up which means, oh, and he, he's, he's found guilty, and at that time in federal uh, murder trials, a guilty verdict automatically comes with death. There, there's no option. So he's, uh, Bram ascends to death, and his lawyers, who are excellent lawyers, uh, friends, they became friendly with him and supported him uh, for the rest of uh, their lives. They d died in old age before Bram. Um, they take the case to the U.S. Supreme Court, which is the natural court of appeals for, from this uh, natural appellate court from a circuit court decision, and um, alleging multiple errors at trial, like 68 errors or something like that. But that's that's standard practice, and the Supreme Court actually winds up focusing on one of their the minor points that Bram's defense lawyers had raised. And that is a um, based on the Fifth Amendment. And it's the first time that the Supreme Court has actually made a ruling based on the Fifth Amendment, interestingly enough. Um, and, you know, the Fifth Amendment is the one that says, a, uh, among other things in the amendment, that, um, that a witness in a criminal case uh, can't be a witness against himself. All right? That's the essential part of it. And what had happened, the, the, the reason how they were able to base their decision on that, was when the ship got to Halifax and both Bram and Brown had been uh, manacled when, when they got there, or had been manacled before they got there and arrived there that way. Um, a local detective <laughs> who fancied himself something of a uh, Sherlock Holmes, um, except he never got the right man. Mm -hmm. um, he, he questioned Bram while Bram was shackled and naked. Certainly not not a uh, uh, appropriate it to uh, our thinking these days about how a a, a defendant should be uh, or an accused should be questioned. But that's how he did it. And um, he had asked Bram a couple of questions. One was he said, "Listen." The uh, the uh, helmsman, Charlie Brown, says he saw you uh, uh, killing the captain. And Bram says, well, how could he have seen me? Where was he? That sounds a little sketchy. But then the, uh, the detective asks, well, listen, Bram, we know you we don't know if you did it, but we know you had something to do with it. So just 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 tell me that. Tell me what happened. And Bram says, well, you know, I didn't have anything to do with it. Charlie Brown did it. Everybody knows that, and I'm not saying anything more. Hmm. And this detective uh, 
testified at the first trial. This Canadian detective testified at the first trial. And that's what the uh, Supreme Court, um, for the first time on a Fifth Amendment basis, um, used to reverse his, uh, his conviction and send him back for a new trial. So there was and a second trial, and before the second trial, Congress created a new verdict in, in federal murder and rape cases, guilty without capital punishment. So uh, it was possible to find him guilty, but uh, without the death penalty. Exactly. And that was, uh, was his saving grace, Bram's saving grace. He was again convicted, again with some pretty funky stuff by the uh, jury, uh, but he was um, convicted and sentenced to life in prison. And um, he winds up in prison first in Boston and then transferred down to a new federal prison in Atlanta. And then, you know, the, the laws keep breaking in his favor. Uh, there's a new parole law which, which provides for the possible release from prison of murderers after 15 years on parole. And Bram gets that, and he's out in uh, 15, uh, he's out, well, totally he was in prison for about 18 years, but uh, he gets out. And um, and then Mary Roberts Reinhardt talks yeah. to President Woodrow Wilson, because uh, she believes that Bram was innocent, and yes. he gave him a full pardon. Uh, uh, yes, he did, in, in, uh, in 1919. Uh, while Wilson was uh, in Versailles negotiating the uh, treaty <laughs> to uh, wrap up World War One, And by that time, Bram was, had been out for uh, five years and had become a successful, successful businessman, opening uh, lunch counters in Atlanta. And, um, but with the, with the pardon, which arguably means that he didn't do it. And that, that's how Bram took it. Not everybody takes a pardon as that, but that's how Bram took it. And uh, with that, he, gets, he uh, regains full legal rights uh, as a citizen and goes on and, and buys a, his own ship and, uh, and captains his, his own commercial vessel for the next uh, 30 years. Well, we'll continue with the story in just a moment. This is Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. My ship has sails that are made of silk. The decks are trimmed with gold. And of jam and spice, there's a paradise in the hole. My ship Ships aglow with a million pearls and rubies fill each bin, and the sun sits high in a sapphire. Before we get back to my conversation with Gerard Coppell, I'd like to take a few minutes to talk to you about something really important. Like like most public radio stations across the country, WBAI has been hit quite hard by the pandemic, and many of our longtime supporters have been forced economically to pull their contributions to the station, which is why we are asking anyone who's able to, in this time of crisis, to please step forward and, and make a contribution of any amount to help keep community radio and let it open at large on the air and coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. And the way to do that is by calling, we hope right now, to 516-620-3602. That's 516 516- 
620-3602, or by going to our website, give to wbai.org. That's give and then the number two, wbai.org. And, and, and one way to, to support the station without having to shell out a lot of money at one time is to become a BAI buddy. There, there are listeners who contribute $10 or more each month to keep the station running and to show their support for what we do on this show. So it allows us the station to plan for the future. And and uh, if it's $10 or $15 or even $20, it's not a big chunk of money uh, that you're contributing every month. So uh, we hope that you will make that call, 516-620-3602. And joining us, me now to tell you about a special event that anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy in the name of our show will be invited to attend is my executive producer, Jesse Lent. Hi, Jesse. Hi, Leonard. Hello, everyone. Like Leonard was just saying, anyone who becomes a BAI buddy, that's a sustaining member of the station, uh, who contributes $10 or more a month to WBAI in the name of Leonard Lopate at large, uh, will be invited to attend a teleconference with Leonard that we're calling My Dinner with Leonard. And it'll be you and nine other fans uh, just talking to Leonard, asking him anything you want, telling him anything you want about the the, the role that the show has played. If, if there was a certain guest that you always kind of wondered was like in person, all of that will be possible just by sort of dropping in into the mix. You know, I know a lot. some stations do, uh, even this station does occasional meet and greets with fans where they, they offer it to the highest bidder, basically. We didn't want to do that here. Leonard's never done a teleconference. These are odd times with the pandemic. Uh, and, and we thought, why not offer this just to the fans who are here every day? So $10 a month or more, uh, if you if you are able to do more, more is great, uh, gets you invited to my dinner with Leonard. And Leonard, I'm sure you're looking forward to it. I am. But actually, it's going to be two dinners, isn't it? We already filled ones and we're filling another. That's true. The first one sold out. So sign up now to get in there while there's still space. Uh, you know, I, I to... Obviously, we 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 uh, we want you to know that that this is just one way that you can support WBAI. Uh, you know, the station is uh, has a huge financial strain from the pandemic, and so really, whatever you're able to do is deeply felt and deeply needed right now. This is just a way that we thought would be fun and and a great way to uh, engage our listeners. And when the first one sold out, we thought 10 people's a good number, enough to sort of mingle a little with your fellow fans, but also not too many people because we want everyone to feel seen, so to speak, and also feel heard. You know, we want you to feel like you can really ask Leonard whatever you want. But the only way to do that is by calling right now, going to that phone, picking up your phone, calling 516-620-3602. Again, the number 516-620-3602. Or going to the website, give to WBAI.org. That's give the and the number two, WBAI.org. And you know, Leonard, to expand on something I was saying Wait, 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 Je- but Jesse, Jesse, I just want to make it clear yes. that uh, when of they course. do that, they should uh, 
I, I don't know what it's like on the website, but they should tell the person who they're calling that they want to be participate in the dinner as well, and that they also uh, are making this contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. If okay. you become a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopate at large, that's all you got to say. You're automatically invited to the dinner. You don't have to attend. Obviously, we understand that life is busy, and and that's not something that everyone wants to participate. Uh, you know, God knows, but if if you sign up to make a contribution to become a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopate at large, to be clear, you are invited to the dinner. And just to, to finish that thought from before, you know, when you're watching television or listening to the radio and you hear a commercial break, uh, that is basically the sound of bills being paid. That is the sound that whatever broadcast entity is playing that commercial has just, you know, they've just paid their rent. They've they've paid their staff, their, their staff. It's the same thing when you hear on a public radio station, uh, the following program is brought to you by the Koch brothers or whoever. We don't do that. There's none of that here on W. We have no one holding us up. We are in a life and death struggle for survival. But anyone who's a longtime listener for the station knows that since 1960, it's always been kind of a life and death struggle. You know, this is progressive radio. And these are uh, a lot of topics that the mainstream is not always so amenable to. So uh, I want to get back to my guests. A reminder again, please call us and support this station. And if you can become a BAI buddy, that's great too, that uh, will get you an invite to my dinner with Leonard. Uh, The number, one more time, 516-620-3602, or you can go to our website, give to WBAI.org. Thank you, Jesse, and, and thank you to all of you who call. Thanks. And uh, let's go back to uh, Gerard Coppell. Um, his latest book, Not a Gentleman's Work, The Untold Story of a Gruesome Murder at Sea and the Long Road to Truth, published by Hachette. Uh, your previous books, Gerard, have all been about New York. Water for Gotham, Bond of Union, City on a Grid. You've contributed to numerous other books, including the Encyclopedia of New York City, uh, associate editor on that, also an editor at CBS News. But does the fact that you're a former sailor uh, connect you to this story in some way? I would say not a former sailor. <laughs> You're still sailing. I still sail. Ah. Um, yo, definitely, definitely. You know, I, it, it it just meant that I had um, um, an understanding of what happens on a, a ship at night, uh, especially, and uh, also, you know, perhaps the, the, the people who. Um, who go to sea? I can't say I've been to you know been to sea as a uh, as a uh, um, as a as a professional sailor, but I was uh, I ran a, a sailboat for a couple of years after college. Uh, went up and down the East Coast, a lot of the territory that uh, that um, this ship went, and down to the uh, Caribbean and uh, sail. But I hope you know, nobody died. America. That that not that I know of. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now so, this yeah. book, I, yeah, I was this... attracted. To, I was attracted to the story for other reasons, but but that my knowledge of the of the setting helped. Now this book kind of reads like a whodunit. So, are you willing to reveal your your thoughts on who might have actually done it? Um, I 
guess so. Well, okay. <laughs> um, well, you narrow it down to... Th yeah. Well, first of all, you've called your book a twin biography because... Yeah. Um, of all the chapters you've devoted to Monks and Bram, but there are yeah. many other important characters here, including the other crew members, the lawyers, right. the judges, the news reporters involved in the case. The yeah. uh, But you narrow it down to the three most likely suspects, um, Charlie Brown, Thomas Bram, and Lester Monks. And why not any of the others? Uh, basically, there's absolutely no way they could have physically been in the after cabin. Um, Three of the crew members and the uh, uh, steward were asleep in the forward cabin. You have to get up out of the cabin, walk along the deck, and then go down to get into the after cabin. So um, they would have been seen by other people who were on deck. And two other crew members of, the, uh, of Bram's watch, who were on duty at the time, were in the forward part of the ship. And there's absolutely no indication that any of them uh, walked back, walked aft and down into the after cabin. And so, the one who was actually closest was Monks, as you say. He was sleeping yeah. in, the, in the same area. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and you argue that the evidence incriminating Brown and Bram is flimsy at most. I mentioned earlier that Monks um, had blood on his clothes after the murder. Yeah. He also changed his story a number of times. So why wasn't he considered a, a serious possibility at the time? Um, you know, I, I think it's just it was the, the deference shown to somebody who was um, uh, you know, from a gentlemanly class, mm -hmm. let's just say. Mm -hmm. They got, you know, they got to Halifax. Um, you know, uh, everybody else on the boat, well, aside from the captain and his wife who are dead, everybody else on the boat is not American originally. Mm -hmm. um, all of the crew, the, uh, the six uh, crewmen are all from Europe. Three of them are from Sweden. Charlie Brown is from Sweden. Uh, one's from France, one's from Germany, one's from Holland. They had uh, varying levels of, of uh, English language skills uh, at the time. Um, the uh, the steward slash cook was from um, uh, from the Caribbean, and um, so and the, Bram was the, from St. Kitts. Bram Bram was from St. Kitts, but Bram mm -hmm. had been in the United States for quite a while and was quite uh, well spoken. He um, and he carried himself uh, very well. He dressed well. Um, there are a couple of pictures of him which show him as a so certainly not the sort of dress of a you know long-term sailor that you might you know in your mind imagine a sailor looks like um, and uh, yeah there were people who th who claimed that he uh, envisioned uh, going on to become a, a, a pirate so that also made him sound like he had criminal intentions. Well, no, he, he never wanted to be a pirate. I mean, that, that was bandied about uh, mm. a little bit about him. But there was absolutely no indication that, that he had any interest in doing that. You know, one of the arguments uh, for him as the killer was that he wanted to take control of the ship and sail it to Cuba, uh, where the uh, Cuban insurrection was just getting going. Um, but uh, if you're gonna if you're gonna uh, 
he certainly never, there was absolutely never any indication that he was going to do that. He never spoke to anybody about it. He wasn't particularly popular with the rest of the crew because, as mm. generally speaking, first mates and crew are not necessarily, uh, don't necessarily have the best relations. Um, so there's just absolutely no indication um, of that. I think the, uh, the prosecutors uh, sort of put it out there uh, to, to, Harm or, or to harm Bram's uh, reputation, maybe to have some effect with the jury. But the jury members who spoke about it afterwards, after each trial, uh, heavily discounted that. In fact, uh, you know, they could not come up with any motive for any of the three of them. It's been suggested that uh, Bram's treatment led to the establishment of Miranda rights. Is that true? Well, the, the, that is true. Um, um, as I said, the uh, after his uh, first uh, guilty verdict, which meant he would be sentenced to death, um, his lawyers went uh, appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, and the court uh, made its uh, judgment based on the Fifth Amendment, which is the first time uh, the Supreme Court ever made a ruling like that, and uh, it. It being the first case based on the Fifth Amendment leads in a somewhat circuitous way, 80 years later or 70 years later, to uh, the Miranda warning, which is the the uh, essentially your right to remain silent, also your right to have an attorney. But the, the point being that uh, Bram had been, according to the court, had been entitled to remain silent when he was being questioned by that uh, Halifax detective. And that's what uh, what uh, scotched the jury, uh, uh, his first jury verdict. In the Afterhouse, her novel that was based on the case, Mary Roberts Reinhardt had her fictional Bram, uh, an innocent martyr who suffered because of a crime committed by a man named Charlie Jones, a homicidal maniac of the worst type. So she is, that's a suggestion that it was Charlie Brown, that she thought it was Charlie Brown. But, she but, believed I, it but, was. But you don't. Yeah. No. Um, again, I, I don't know why she, she picked that. I think just, you know, people who looked at the case closely were just very um, wary of, of pointing at, uh, at Lester Monks as this uh, Harvard boy, even though he was tossed out, uh, this Harvard boy from a good family. Um, Who'd had mental uh, issues. Uh he certainly had drinking issues. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And yes, probably some mental issues because as, as it turned out later in his life, uh, um, after the first trial, he got, um, married, married a proper girl from, uh, from Washington, DC and, uh, had a couple of children with her. And then he apparently started beating her and Mm -hmm. she divorced him in 1910, 1911 and, uh, claiming, um, cruel and abusive treatment, which is sort of a standard divorce claim now, but it was much less uh, frequent then and generally uh, had to entail actual physical beating. Um, so, you know, he had, he certainly had, had violence in him combined with, uh, with uh, um, a, a taste for, uh, for liquor. As I mentioned in my introduction, your title comes from Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment, in which fellow prisoners tell Raskolnikov, the, the protagonist, you're a gentleman. You shouldn't hack about with an axe. That's not a gentleman's work. Uh, 
When did you realize that that was going to, were you reading Crime and Punishment when you were working on this book? You know, I, I, I was wondering about that. I, I was I, I was afraid you might ask. Okay, well, you um, don't have to answer if you don't want to. No, 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 I'll, I'll answer. I'll answer. Um, I, I think that I had, uh, I mean, I've read a lot, all the Russians in English, and uh, um, I think I must have looked back at uh, Crime and Punishment, it being an axe book, and mm-hmm. um, I found that line. It, it, you know, it's translated differently depending on who's do, doing the translation. This is the classic translation by uh, Constance Garnett. Um, the but best what I one. like about it, excuse me? The best one as far as I'm concerned, yes. despite all the that, controversy. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> um, uh, what I liked is the way it works um, in two ways in the context of this book. So hacking about with axe, hacking about with an axe is not a gentleman's work. So mm. if Bram did it, he was certainly not a gentleman, uh, then it would have been not a gentleman's work. It would have been something that, that a gentleman wouldn't have done. Mm. Um, and if Monks did it, he was arguably a gentleman, and it's something that as a gentleman he should not have done. Mm. So I just, did that, did, that, did I explain yes. that? Yes, it, it does. And we're going to have to leave it there. Unfortunately, okay. we've run out of time, All but right. uh, uh, let me remind our listeners that my guest is Gerard Coppell, K-O-E-P-P-E-L. Uh, his latest book, Not a Gentleman's Work, The Untold Story of a Gruesome Murder at Sea and the Long Road to Truth. It's published by Hachette. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Leonard, thanks very much. And that brings us to the end of today's show. If you're new to our program and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as a... uh, uh, an iTunes podcast, and you can find links to all of our past shows on our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. Don't forget to check out Leonard Lopate at Large on Facebook and Twitter as well. Before I sign off today, I'd like to take just a moment to ask you to support the station, remind you what we were talking about earlier. If you care about Leonard Lopate at Large and all of the great programs on WBAI, we need your help to keep this station alive. And I, I hope you can step up right now and, and make a contribution at whatever level you're comfortable with. And as we were talking, Jesse and I were talking about earlier, if you become a BAI buddy right now by making a monthly contribution of $10 or more in the name of this show, you can join me for a special teleconference event that we're calling My Dinner with Leonard. So please go to our website, give to WBAI.org or call 516-620-3602 right now to support this station. Um, uh, we will be, uh, and we thank you all uh, if you do it. We're off the, the rest of the week, but we hope that you'll join us on Monday when Sam Fader will join us to discuss working with Laverne Cox on their Netflix documentary, Disclosure, about the history of trans people in the United States. Uh, please give us that call. WBAI needs your support. And I'm looking forward to seeing all of you at my dinner with Leonard. or go to WBAI, uh, give to WBAI.org. And thanks.